Well, I tell you, everybody loves to see or experience dramatic change. I mean, that's why the TV shows on HGTV catch your eye. You want to see the before and the after. Sledgehammers going all at it. They pull everything old out. They put everything new in. And you see the pictures. And you just love to see the drastic change. That's what weight loss companies do. They want to show you dramatic change so they will motivate you, the before and the after, to grab a hold of their diet plan, their substance, to exercise, whatever it is. They want you to see the drastic change. Now, parents in here, we've all experienced that with our kids. Our kids, they, de- they begin to develop, they begin to grow, and ultimately they change. Now, we want to keep them little for as long as possible, but everything about them begins to change. You who have teenagers, your teenager is a lot different than he was five, ten years ago, right? Amen? Yeah, they change. Well, change happens because of, of growth. Anything that is growing has to be changing. If you go outside in your front flower bed and you put your seeds in, there's a process of growth that takes place. And you don't want to just show beautiful pictures of seeds. You want to see beautiful flowers come from that growth process. The same thing happens within God's church. You see, growth brings change. You've experienced that with me. Uh, We have seen uh, service times have changed. We have seen your precious location for your small group on Sunday mornings maybe relocated. That's change. Um, the whole culture has changed. It's a part of a process to, to take on identity and mission. Uh, that has been in a process of change. There's also been a lot of things that maybe you personally have experienced. Well, when we look at this unstoppable change, we're, we're not talking about the church. We're not talking about our kids. We're not even talking about our, our home remodel project. We're looking in Acts chapter 9 this morning. And in Acts chapter 9, is an incredible display of unstoppable change. We see a man who was the persecutor of the church. And this guy was full of passion and zeal. He was going to do whatever he could do to eliminate the church and the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, something took place in the early church with this incredible display of change. And the gospel was at the very root and foundation for this change. Now, that is the same with us today. You see, today in our life is that the power of the gospel brings change to both the saved and the unsaved. If you look at your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, would you not be able to recognize that there's been change in you from the day you trusted Christ as your Savior to the day where you are today? Hopefully, there's been some spiritual growth. There's been some maturity, some foundation in you that has been laid, that has, been, has, has experienced growth. That's called maturity. That's called sanctification. But the same power in the gospel also brings dramatic change to an unconverted life that meets Jesus. When they meet Jesus, their life changes forever. Now, Acts chapter 9 gives us that story, and it's one that we're going to study here for just a little bit. Would you look in Acts 9, verse number 1? And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priests, and desired of him letters to Damascus, 
to the synagogues. And if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now, right away, we see that Christianity has certainly spread. And in Damascus, there must have been so much good going on in the church that this grabbed a hold of Saul's attention that he was going to get the paperwork from the high priest to go and find the disciples or the followers, the Christians, in order to take them into bondage. And so verse number three, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Two times that it's used here, Saul, Saul, that's a display of, of great emotion by Christ himself. And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Now, we're going to read verses 10 through 19 in just a moment. But here at the very beginning, we see this unstoppable change that happens in the life of Saul. Father, we need your guidance in this text today. And my prayer would be that we would humbly stand before you, desperate to hear from you. So as we sit in the comforts of this room, help our minds to be in tune to your truth. Help our ears to be open, our minds engaged in what you would teach us. I pray that as your messenger with this great honor and privilege that I would not detract or distract from the message today. But that I would humbly approach this with the high calling of responsibility to proclaim your message today. And so we hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you may remember the surprise that your friends or family members had when you told them you became a Christian. Maybe it went a little bit like this. What? You became a, a Christian? <laughs> Not you. No way. Anybody experience that? All right, a few of you have. In high school, perhaps you were the guy that was voted to be the most pagan, most likely to be pagan, or maybe the most likely to end up in prison. <laughs> maybe that was you, but you certainly didn't have your picture in the yearbook that said most likely to become a Christian. I mean, that's just your track record. That's your history. That's your story. That's where Saul is. And one of the greatest changes in the early church and really all throughout church history is the one we just re read here in Acts chapter 9. Now, John MacArthur records a story in his commentary on the book of Acts. And he records the very familiar story that uh, we are well aware of with John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And John Newton, uh, excuse me, John MacArthur begins to write this in his commentary about the story of John Newton, how at a very young age he went off to sea. And he would travel from boat to boat and he became involved in the slave trade market. He was actually responsible for capturing slaves and selling them to other slave owners. But his life became so low at one point that he was actually sold himself to a slave owner. God began to get a hold of his heart and, and things began to change in his life. He finally became free again and owned his own slave ship. 
One night when he was at sea, a very strong storm came through and caused a lot of concern and reflection in his own mind. He began to read a book on the imitations of Christ. And as he read that book in his heart, he began to be convicted of his own sin in his life. And that moment in John Newton's life, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. But the story, though it's incredible, there's something that stands out in the story of John Newton. Though in the 18th century England, he was around great men of the evangelical movement like John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and William Wilberforce. But the thing that I wanted to point out was what was written on his tombstone still to this day as he went into eternity. It was written by Newton himself. Here's what it says. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Hmm. Today we see this very dramatic change in a man that lived his life to destroy the gospel. Here's a persecutor of the church. Here's a man that to his own record, you would find people who lost their life because of him. This is Saul. And the change that happened give us a lot of lessons for us today as the church to stay aware of and to be certain that that change can still happen. Number one, we see in verses one through nine, this first lesson is that everyone is a prospect of change. Right away in verse number one, we see that this Saul was very passionate. He was threatening and breathing out these threatenings and this slaughter. It was not just that he was going to come and rough them up a little bit. It wasn't that he was going to threaten them. He had a, a motive and a goal, and it was to eliminate the disciples or the followers of Jesus Christ. And so this was a huge change that happened in the heart and mind of a man who was fanatical about fulfilling this elimination campaign. Well, in spite of his incredible knowledge and in spite of his learning under Gamaliel, remember we studied Gamaliel last week in our message, he was an ignorant man blinded from the truth of the gospel. What's interesting about this learned man, Saul, if he was a student under Gamaliel, he eventually went against Gamaliel's teachings or his advice. Because remember in chapter 5 last week, Gamaliel gave some wisdom and advice to just let the disciples be, let the followers of Christ be. Let them speak their truth, let them speak their message, and if it's of man, it'll fall away, it'll crumble. But if it's of God, you can't fight against it. Well, Saul didn't take that advice because he went right at it. Do you remember in Acts chapter number 7, at the end of the chapter, a man by the name of Stephen, one of the first deacons of the early church, it was Stephen who would proclaim the truth and Saul and a bunch of men of the religious establishment who would take him outside the city gate and they would stone him. And the men would take off their jackets, their cloaks, and they would put it at the feet of one man named Saul. So the first martyr of the early church happened at the hands and the approval of a man named Saul. He did not understand what the Old Testament really taught about the Messiah, and so he fanatically and passionately went after those that were going against what he had learned from the Mosaic Law. So like many others of his countrymen, he stumbled over the message of the cross. He had a very hard time coming to grips with this, and he was depending on his own righteousness 
instead of the righteousness of God. Remember what Saul would write years later after being converted, and he would write to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse number 22 and 23, he would say, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, speaking about the truth of the gospel. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks it's foolishness. Now, Saul, Paul, would have recognized this very well because he remembers with his countrymen looking at the truth of the gospel or this Messiah has come, this message of the cross, it was a stumbling block to him. It was something that caused him animosity and hatred. He wanted nothing to do with that message of hope. And so anybody who proclaimed this truth that Jesus had passed down, he wanted to eliminate He thought it was blasphemy against God. He thought it was going against the message of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law. He wanted no part of it, and so he would do everything he could. You know, you realize today that many self-righteous religious people, even today, they do not see their need for a Savior, and they will bring strong resentment to those who try to tell them anything differently. If we try to proclaim that Jesus loves them and Jesus died for them and they can't get to heaven or eternity in in their own self-righteousness, well, they resent that message. They don't want to be called a sinner. They don't want anything to do with the message of the gospel. They don't want to hear about the cross. They don't want to hear the choir minister in song about at the cross where Jesus died for you and for me. And so we continue to proclaim the truth out of love as God motivates us and gives us the opportunity to love people with the truth. This past Thursday, I had the opportunity to preach chapel at a Christian school down in Sefner. And as I went into this uh, group of about 60 teenagers, I was told by the leadership team that there were many teenagers there that probably do not know Jesus as their Savior. And so before I got up to preach on living like Jesus, my prayer was that God would help me to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and just to communicate truth into their lives. And so as we got toward the end of living like Jesus, and just the message of him when he was a 12-year-old boy went from how he was intentional, relational, and missional, and looking at the mission of what Jesus had come to accomplish, and that was to seek and to save the lost. And so as we had the opportunity to share that truth, when it came time for invitation, I just simply asked them, how many of you in here would say that you do not know at all If you would go to heaven when you die. There's never been a time in your life where you've confessed your sin. There's never been a time in your life where you've asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. That experience has never happened for you. If that's you today, would you just raise your hand? And I tell you, 20, 25 kids raised their hand that day. So my heart was burdened and certainly just asking God to guide now in these moments. And in that moment, you think, you just give a blanket prayer and just have these teenagers. But I told them very clearly, my words cannot be a magic wand sprinkled over your head and you walk out of here thinking something has just magically happened. I said, if you want to meet Jesus today, I'll stay afterwards. Your faculty and staff, they love you. They'll stay afterwards and we'll talk with you. And so at the close of the service, after I had asked how many of you want to know Jesus, about seven or eight hands went up and I said, find somebody to talk to today. So after we dismissed, everybody heard the bell, they're running off to lunch, they're running off to math class, they're running off to their responsibilities, and I just kind of stood there greeting the teens as they left, and one young man with tears flowing down his eyes, Justin looked at me and said, I need 
to know Jesus. And so he had the opportunity to share God's word with him in the back corner of that room, and he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior that day. Now, here's the reality, though. Even teenagers who are open and moldable, there was a, a closed spirit because they're blinded by the enemy. We get so frustrated with the unsaved. Like, why can't you just grab a hold of the truth? It's right there. I mean, look at me. I'm changed, right? We're like, okay, well, wait, that's a bad example. Look at them. They're changed, okay? <laughs> and um, we get so frustrated. Like, why can't you just take the love of Jesus? But we know that there's an enemy that is so actively involved in blinding and hardening the heart. And so we continually pray and realize that everyone is a prospect of change and that God will do his work. He uses us as the mouthpiece, as the messenger, as the prayer warrior to bring them before God, and then God does the rest. And so here, Saul was in that place, and what's so incredible is, is to see how this happened and his immediate response. Look at his immediate response. As he fell to the earth, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why per persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? We must ask this question and long to know the answer. Here's an unsaved man, fanatical about destroying the church and eliminating the gospel. And he is asking, who are you, Lord? Paul would spend the rest of his life pursuing to know God. Remember what he wrote to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul asked that day as Saul, who are you, Lord? And he spent the rest of his life knowing God more. Christian? Maybe you asked that same question the day you trusted in Christ. Who are you, Lord? And you learned that he was your Savior who paid for your sins and that he was your Lord to guide your life. But you said, okay, um, I'll take A, but B, Lord of my life, eh, not today. But Savior, woo, I need a Savior. And all of a sudden, instead of continually asking, who are you, Lord? We said, I'll just take you as Savior. Paul wanted to know his God as his master, as his leader, as his Lord. And today, church, we must ask that question and search the answer, who are you, Lord? But notice what else he asked him. He trembling and astonished, he said, um, or the Lord responded to him. And then verse number seven, where did he respond with this? Um, six, nope, yes. Lord, what will thou have me to do? This is one of those congregational build the sermon kind of things, all right? So thank you for your help. Verse number six, what do you want me to do? You know, there are, there are not many who would dare ask this question because they're really not prepared for the answer. Let me say that again. There are many who would, would not dare ask this question because they don't want to know what the answer is. Why does serving God seem to take back seat to everything else in our life? The shape of the church today has changed so dramatically because people put work, career, and money before serving God. Hobbies, talents, and entertainment take first place. Relationships, time with their spouse, time with their kids, time with their parents, time with their friends, time with their buddies. 
takes first place. Now, there's a proper balance to all of this, to our career, to our hobbies, to our relationships. There's always that proper balance, but that's a sign of spiritual maturity. It's learning how to manage my time. It's learning to, to manage my passions. It's, it's learning how do I pour my energy and, and we're not going to go on this trail of talking about all the distractions that are around us because they bring this sense of a false sense of security in our life. But what we have to remember here in focusing is what Paul said, what do you want me to do? What do I do next? And too many Christians are really not interested in asking God, what do you want me to do? What do you want to do with my life? Because we are terrified of what the answer might be. And so we have to get over that hump in spiritual maturity that says, I am willing to give it all as God requires. What does that look like? Many times we're more interested in what God wants others to do, but the true surrendered heart makes it personal. Did you see that with Paul, with Saul? He said, me. He says, what do you want me to do? Not what do you want us to do? I mean, they had a, he had an entourage ready to go to Damascus and eliminate the church. And he doesn't say, well, God, what do you want, what do you want us to do? He says, no, this is about me. What do you want me to do? And Luke shows us an extremely um, helpless, utterly helpless Saul in this position. Because Saul had experienced the blinding light of Jesus. And then instead of Saul laying hold of Christians, he was actually now being guided by his hand to find the Christians. Secondly, not only is everyone a prospect, but in verses 10... Verses 10 through 17, we see that God uses ordinary people to assist with change. Look at this. There was a certain disciple. Now, have you noticed some of the words that are used for Christians? Remember, the label Christian hasn't come into play yet. I think it's going to come into play in chapter 11 or 12, somewhere in there. Uh, yeah, chapter 11, verse number 26. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so um, Luke here is using references to the word disciples, verse number one, those in the way, this way, verse number two, speaking the way of Christianity or the way of, of, um, of uh, pursuing a relationship with Jesus. There's uh, verse number 10, again, the word disciple, verse 13, saints, verse 19, disciples. So again, disciples are followers of Christ here at this point because the disciples have become apostles, so they're not the uh, group that we think the 12 disciples, la-di-da-di-da. No, this is uh, now a term for all the believers. Verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul. Of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth, and he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Okay, put your place, put yourself in Ananias's place. He hears the voice of the Lord. He says, "Behold, I'm here, Lord. Tell me, speak to me." He says, "I want you to go." He gives very specific directions: the place, straight, the uh, street, straight, straight street, whichever one. He says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to inquire and go into the house of Judah or Judas. For there's a man coming. Here's what I want you to do. A man by the name of Saul. He's flowing with the Lord. Okay, this makes sense. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. This is what I'm going to do. Okay, Saul. But the Lord says, Saul of Tarsus. Oh, man. Like his stomach just dropped. He's like, what? Now look what happens in verse 13. Then Ananias answered, 
Lord, uh, <laughs> I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Somehow Ananias already heard the news. Saul and an entourage are coming to Damascus. They're going to bound up, bind up everybody who does not deny the name of Jesus Christ and take you as captive. Here's verse 15. Here's the Lord's response. Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way. He entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto you in the way as thou camest hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 10 introduces us to just an ordinary man by the name of Ananias. David Guzik said this about Ananias. He says, Ananias was an ordinary man, not an apostle, not a prophet, not a pastor, not an evangelist, not an elder or a deacon. Yet God used him because he was an ordinary man. We look at drastic change and we think, yeah, that, somebody else has that story to tell. We'll bring them in and let it be the pastor and the church's responsibility, but let's all remember that we sit as ordinary men and women that God wants to use to assist in the change of people's life. We just have to approach the Lord and say, here I am, what do you want me to do? Ananias is in this position. We must find ourselves willing and wanting for God to use us to be the assistance in people's change. We don't see a lot of change happening. I understand that no change is happening because of our prayer or no change is happening because of our witness or nothing is happening because of our boldness or our obedience. Our natural response is to become discouraged and disheartened and we say, I'm not the one to be used for change in people's lives. But we must remain faithful and waiting. Do you remember what Paul would write at the end of the letter to the Corinthians chapter 15? He said, but thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, therefore, because of that, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, I'm with you. There are times where you feel like your boldness, your obedience, your courage, your, your witness, your prayers, like nothing is working. And you get disheartened and you give up. And you say, if you only knew how long I was praying for this man or this woman. If you only knew how many times I took the initiative to begin conversation. If you only knew the boldness that I had to overcome great fear with. If you only knew how much I desired for this change and nothing has happened. And so with that discouragement, we say that our labor is never going to be in vain in the Lord and that he will reward that and he will always count us faithful. We should work hard in everything now, working for the Lord, because right now counts for eternity. The stories could be told of people's impact that they made without them ever knowing. Maybe their life went into eternity before they even uh, made an impact in somebody else's life. This Saturday morning, we, as a church family, we have the opportunity to rally behind a vision and mission of the church, and that's to connect with our community with outreach. 
And so on Saturday morning, and you say, well, I can't get out there and walk around. Totally get it. We're going to have a group of people meeting here in the congregation who just pray 30, 45 minutes as the teams go out in the community. There's going to be opportunities for you to share the gospel, opportunities for you just to share a gift of a water bottle. There's just going to be ways for you to engage, to take steps of boldness. But so often, we don't want to ask the Lord what we can do next to serve him. We want to say, what can I eliminate from God's service so I can fit more of my personal life into my schedule? Because I'm with you. I got a lot of things I want to do with my life. I got a lot of things that bring me happiness and joy and smiles and laughter. And so there's a lot of times where I'm so consumed by those things that I'm thinking, what is it that I can eliminate from the church? What is it that I don't have to be involved in? And so all of a sudden, I'm not, I'm not crying out the same prayer of a changed heart that says, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm saying, Lord, what can I get away from not doing? Now, if you haven't been around Parkway long enough to realize that we never put pressure on you to be burnt out from one side to the next, then you haven't been here long enough. Or maybe you haven't had personal conversation with me long enough to know or to understand the value we place on the family unit and the marriage. But the reality is sometimes you can be a better example to your kids by getting them off the ball field and into the community sharing the love of Jesus. And sometimes you can get away from the date night just to spend night pouring into somebody else. And sometimes we just need to learn proper balance of our schedule and our life that's more in tuned and focused to serving God instead of serving us. Why has our life, our personal life, become such high maintenance? Like, why is it all about me, my growth, my flourishment, my joy, my entanglements? Why? Because we're not asking, Lord, what can I do for you? What do you want me to do? Now, again, caveat, I go all the way back and I say, your marriage is of utmost importance and so you don't leave a spouse behind just so that you can serve the church while leaving them in the dust. You, you, you don't lose out on pouring into your kids and your family because you're so-called serving a higher calling. You partner with them in serving the Lord. And you grow together with these steps. So Paul here is is a tremendous, excuse me, not really Paul, this is now Ananias, who is saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Behold, I am here. And look at his response. Verse number 10, total surrender without hesitation. Isn't that incredible? And then verse 13 and 14, now that he knows the details, he's got some understandable concerns and doubt, right? I've been there. Like, okay, God, is this really from you or is this the enemy trying to trick me into something? Like, God, do you really want me to be involved in this? And we find here that this concern and doubt was answered out of a patient, long-suffering heart of God. Because Christ is the messenger and Jesus doesn't chastise or condemn Ananias for questioning this. In verse 13 and 14, he gives his concerns, his doubt. He's got a document to come and take us all to prison. But the Lord says, I want you to go thy way, and let me give you some assurance. He is a chosen vessel unto me. So in verse 17, we see complete obedience without shortcuts. And we see a welcoming and grace-filled acceptance by Ananias. And then ultimately belief there. 
Ananias didn't keep Saul at an arm's length. Ananias didn't um, tell everybody to leave the room and so I can just deal with Saul. Saul was going to be graciously dealt with by an ordinary man named Ananias. You think about the ordinary people in your life. Let's think back to the ordinary man or woman who assisted your life with change. Can you think about that? Who was it that shared the gospel with you? Who was it that said, here's John 3.16, here's Romans 10. Hey, here's how you pray. Here's what we say. Here's what we do. Who was it that led you to Jesus? For me, in my home, it was mom and dad who were pouring gospel truths into my little heart. And then one day in junior church, I just said, I'm going to stay afterwards and talk to Miss Finnamore, and I'm going to pray with her and trust Jesus. And so my ordinary woman was Miss Finnamore. Who was yours? Let's do something awkward, okay? Let's just do something awkward. On the count of three, just say the person's name, okay? Now, don't give us the long title, Dr. Okay, because then your, your voice will be left out there hanging, okay? So, you know, Sue, Joe, Bob, Miss Finnamore, whoever it was, all right? On the count of three, we're just going to all say it. Now, if you don't have somebody to say, maybe it was Jesus Christ himself, okay? So that was Paul's story. Uh, Paul was, uh, was, was confronted by Jesus, heard the truth of the gospel, and was saved because of Jesus uh, and that message. And so um, if that's who you want to say, you can be spiritual like Paul, okay? So on the count of three, one, two, three, Miss Finnamore. Oh, wow, that was good. That was good. Father, thank you for these people. This isn't the end of our message, but we've got to stop and thank you for ordinary people that you placed in our lives that had enough in them to say they loved us and wanted to show us the truth. Some of the changes were pretty drastic. For others, maybe not so much. But whatever it was, you used ordinary people to pour into us. Thank you for that. Amen. Let me ask you this question. Could somebody say your name as the ordinary person who assisted change into their life? Like, are there people who have said, Peter, he was the one that loved me enough to share the, the truth of the gospel and to share the love of Jesus so that I could be changed. Like, I'm with Ananias here. I, I love it. I'm going to have some doubts and concern too, but I want to take steps of obedience just like Ananias did. And Saul's conversion, it, it really, it, it will shock us unless we have a clear understanding of the marvel of God's sovereign grace. So this kind of change cannot, cannot knock us over. We have to understand the sovereign grace of God. The last thing here, the last lesson is verse 18 and 19. Immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. He received sight forwith and he arose and he was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. So Saul was saved by grace. He was converted here, united by Christ or to Christ by faith and sealed for all eternity by the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 <clears throat> Back in verse 11, told us an immediate response to the conversion of Saul. Now, there's some disagreement here, by the way. And I, I fought over this all week long in my mind. Some people would say that Saul became converted in verse number 18 when the scales fell off, the symbol of the physical blindness and the spiritual blindness. And, um, and so, uh, and he says, and you'll be filled with the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So there are some people who would say that was the moment. Then you've had people for years who've said he was saved on the road to Damascus. 
So I had to kind of go back and forth a little bit and say, well, where, where am I going to stand on this issue? Not that it's an overtly major deal, but I, I kind of look at verse number 11, and Jesus said to Ananias that Saul was praying. And then in verse number 17, he put his hands on him and said, Brother Saul... And so here then after this moment is taking place, he was filled with the Holy Ghost or maybe had already been, been baptized by the Holy Spirit, but now is being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do greater things. And so verse 11, I see this immediate change that happens. There's this prayer. Prayer is the autograph, Charles Spurgeon said, prayer is the autograph of the Holy Ghost upon the renewed heart. Verse 18, at this moment when Saul's physical blindness is, is gone, we see this evidence of change that happens because he wants to be baptized. And the Holy Spirit was already active in Saul's life because the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin, uh, convinced him of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit converted him, placed him into the body of Christ in the church, and then is now indwelling him permanently. So the Holy Spirit is active in this part. Now, on top of all that, he was to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that empower, uniquely empowered him to do great things. Uh, I see a couple of things here. The Holy Spirit took his natural abilities and redefined them. Think about Paul, Saul. Think of his natural abilities. Great leader. He was bold, self-starter, very motivated, a great public speaker. He was somebody that had a mission and he was gung-ho. He'd stick to it. So God took those and uniquely empowered him to use those same natural abilities to be used for God's work. I don't know of very many people, even the saints of old, who would have been able to face what Saul faced or Paul faced with imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks and, and torture and, and, the, and the blasphemes and the rejections. But then secondly, I see the Holy Spirit replaced his undesirable characteristics, totally replaced them. He took his cruel hatred and he became loving. He took his relentless and aggressive spirit and he became peaceful. He took his pride and substituted humility, and the Holy Spirit took his rough treatment of people and gave him gentleness and meekness. Incredible change that happened. He immediately chose to be identified with Jesus and the followers of Christ by being baptized in verse 18, but then look at verse number 19. He partners with the other believers. So he finds the other disciples there in Damascus, and he spends a few days there probably asking questions and fellowshipping and partnering together, and, and, and they're asking him questions, and this is a time of fellowship. But then verse number 20, which is not a part of our message, we see that straightway immediately he preached Christ in the synagogue. And so he's proclaiming the name of Jesus. This is genuine change that is bringing immediate responses. Now, the process of sanctification is that we don't just change things overnight. I get that. So by love, as a partner in change, we partner with somebody and we teach them the truths of the word of God and we allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come on them. And so we don't tell them that they have to change everything about them. We let the Holy Spirit show that. And we begin to say, here's things that may be a little different now in your life because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So yeah, you can't go out and murder somebody tomorrow because you're a follower of Jesus. You can't, you've got to put away these habits because you're a follower of Jesus. And so here, we would see that immediate change took place because of the gospel. God ransomed one of the most unlikely men, a persecutor of the church, 
to become a messenger of the gospel. And look how Paul would later conclude this. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you want to turn there in our conclusion, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Remember the letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, one of his young converts. He was a pastor in the church at Ephesus, and he was being bombarded by a lot of junk. False teachers were trying to push their agenda into the church at Ephesus. Timothy was discouraged. He was fearful. If you remember at the beginning of the letter, he said, God has not given us an attitude, a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind, clear thinking. So as Paul's writing this letter, he addresses something that's very important here at the very beginning. And in verse number 11, here's what Paul says. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious or harmful but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this cause, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should believe on him to life everlasting. Wow. Paul recognized the very fact that he would suffer greatly for the name of Jesus Christ, but that God would use him to set the example and pattern for people to see unstoppable change that happened in the early church but can happen today. Many of us in here, we are examples of the unstoppable change. But many of us want to still continue to see that unstoppable change happen, like the incredible work of God. And so as God's church, we rally together to see, to pray, and to experience the unstoppable change. And God wants to use ordinary people like us to assist in that change. I hope you're ready for that.